0: Well, as we said a couple times today, happy Mother's Day, and it's good to be with you this morning. So as you can, you might hear, my voice is a little uh, nasally today, and where's April? She's still here? She'd probably make fun of me. This is my like once a year cold that settles into my chest, and, and stays there for a couple of weeks. It's not great for preaching. I will tell you, it is really good for when you're reading a Louis L'Amour Western to your eight-year-old, Black Bart came to town to cause trouble, but I'm the marshal, and trouble's my business. I mean, but it's not great for preaching, right? So uh, so uh, bear with me, if you will. So um, this morning, we are starting a new series called Life in Exile, and it's founded on this, this simple truth that we're going to be exploring for the next few weeks, that Christians living in this age are exiles and sojourners. It's one of the many ways that God describes his people in the age between when Christ ascended to heaven and when he will come back. During this time, this is called the time of our exile, and he describes us as pilgrims, as strangers in the world, not truly belonging here. Now, what does it mean to be exiled? A couple definitions, it can be an enforced removal or a self-imposed absence from somebody's native country. Or to put stronger, it can be being barred from somebody's country. But generally speaking, it's the condition of living away from home, living away from your native country. So this designation of calling Christians exiles isn't an immediately an encouraging one. The question is, though, does that feel like it's true of you? All right does that I mean, Does that really describe the situation of every Christian even here in America? It's a sobering fact I think that some of us will have to force ourselves to reconcile with. See, Christianity in the West has really long enjoyed uh, a status of being in the majority. Right? The church has had standing and respect in the culture. because think about it, most of our institutions uh really have been shaped. By a Christian heritage, even if you know, even though most cr- people, citizens, didn't necessarily share a, cr- a saving faith, there was a, a shared moral center in our community. This has sometimes been called cultural Christianity, where there was some uh, we're holding to Christian values. Being a church attender, you know, being a member of a church somewhere was, you know, looked highly upon. It was even really like expected. Right, I mean, I don't think you could run for political office if you, didn't, if you weren't a church member somewhere, at least at some point in our history, right? And for all its problems, and there certainly are problems with cultural Christianity, no doubt about it, it did shape the nation in profound ways and certainly provided benefits not just for Christians but for the society at large. I mean, think about all the hospitals and charities and things that were made, the idea of moral responsibility and building the family and so forth and so on. All fueled and shaped by this cultural Christianity. Now, I would say for most of Christian history and in most places of the world, that is certainly not the case. All right? Christians have long and most of the time are living in the margins of society. You go back and read the New Testament, that was entirely the case in the early church. You know, living in, uh, living under Roman rule, living in the margins, having no power, no voice. Being hated by the world. You know, at that time when Peter and the apostles and Paul were writing the New Testament and for the generations afterward, the idea of saying you're an exile, you don't belong really in this world, that was an easy sell. But I think if you're a Christian in America, you may be feeling it more now than you did 10, 20, 30 plus years ago. I recently read a Gallup study that said the U.S. church membership was 73% in America, when Gallup first measured it in 1937. And it hovered, and you can look at it, it's almost right around 70% of Americans had some sort of a religious membership, uh, right around 70% for the next six decades. And then something happened about 20 years ago in 2020. Right around the, the, the 21st century, that started declining abruptly. And in 2020, only 47% of U.S. adults belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That's down 20 points in the last 20 years. So this, this, is, this change is, is due to a number of factors, but a lot of it is more people stating they have no religious preference whatsoever. Now, in some sense, that could simply be just stating what was kind of already the case, and people are more living it out uh, more consistently. But for whatever reason, cultural Christianity is going away. The influence of the church to shape culture, art, politics, education... And so forth is certainly waning. Now, I do think there is a bright side to this. I think there's things that we can lament. and I think there are things that we can celebrate. I think this can be a, very, a purifying time for the church. As those who truly believe in Christ, who aren't simply attending church or wearing the moniker of Christian for some outside social benefit, I feel like that, that can have a purifying effect. I think it allows the church to have a purer voice shine brighter as a light in the world. However, I think there is... Much to lament. Uh, I commend to you an article on the Gospel Coalition. This past week was written by a man named Andrew T. Walker. And he wrote a really good article on on that as well. So I I commend you to look at that. But the point I want you to consider this morning. Christian, this world is not your home. But here's the thing. It never has been. It wasn't our home when there was 70% church attendance Or 40 or 30 percent it wouldn't be our home if there was 95 percent church attendance in america we don't belong here and here's why if christ is your lord then you have an entirely different citizenship in philippians 3 chapter uh, verse 20 paul says that our citizenship is in heaven Jesus talks about how you have, if you are in Christ, you have been born again, born from above, born from heaven, so that you have a whole new citizenship. Your home is not in this age, but the age to come. You don't belong anymore to the kingdom of this world. Colossians says that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So this means that no matter what country or city or state or period of time you're in, it doesn't matter if you really fit in well in the world, you're successful, you have a good name, or you feel very much outcast, it doesn't matter if you like living in the world, this world is not our home. We don't truly belong here. And if we if this, if this we don't belong here, if this isn't our home, then what are we doing here, right? Are we just saying things? that don't really make sense, don't comport with reality? Well, Scripture tells us that what we're truly doing here is living in a kind of exile or a kind of sojourning. And so for our May series, we're going to be focusing on what it means to be a sojourner or an exile in the world and how this will shape how we think and how we live in the world, how it will set our expectations and our hope so we're going to look at a couple of different things over the next few weeks. We're going to look at John 17, where we're told that we are, we are to live in the world, but not be of the world. We're going to talk from the Old Testament prophets, because they draw from the time when Israel was in exile in Babylon, and, and how the prophets wrote to them. What is it actually like to live in exile? How can we be faithful in seeking the good and the welfare of our city? Because we don't want to live, even though we're, we're living here, we're not of this world, we still want to seek the good and the welfare of the world that we are in. We're going to look, look at Philippians 3 and Hebrews 11 and talk about how we should desire a better country. Not a better country, but a heavenly country. And so I, I pray that this will be encouraging and challenging and enlightening for you as we take these next couple weeks. Today, though, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter And talk about God's will for us as exiles and sojourners. So would you begin by praying with me this morning. Lord, I pray that as we discuss these truths, as we open up your word, God, that you would nourish us. As we heard that word earlier, that we would walk away just encouraged. And God, more sober-minded. And God, that we would love you and your people more and your gospel more. Lord, open up our ears and our heart to receive this. Lord, personally, I pray that you would be with my voice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. (coughs) Pardon me. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 and 2 to to kick off this morning. Peter writes this letter and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who, who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter begins this letter, and he writes to the what he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion now so much of that language seems like it's hearkening to israel if you remember anything about israel's history you could you could break down there there are several different eras in the story of israel we just read about the story of the judges that period of time and you, you could but i think you can generally break down old testament history of israel into four main eras you have their time in egypt when they were to really begin to grow into an actual nation. That lasts for 430 years. Slavery in Egypt. And then you have the their period of we're in the wilderness. After the exodus, after God rescues them from slavery, they, they travel and wander in the wilderness for 40 years where they are not yet in the promised land. But then you do what when they enter into Canaan. And they're in this promised land and they become a nation with laws and and, and they, they, they have a kingdom and a priesthood, and the temple is built. And that period lasts for over 800 years until their sin and their idolatry grows so great, so heinous, that God sends them into Babylon, into exile. When the New Testament looks at describing, like, well, for the church, what does our time look like? If we're going to look at the example of Israel's history, you know, Which 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 part of Israel's history best describes where we're at right now? Because Israel lived in many different ways, in many different kinds of ways, trying to be faithful in all of them—in slavery, and wandering, in exile, in promise. Scripture tends to draw on really two of them. One is this idea of in the wilderness. Where Christians have left slavery, We've been, we have this exodus in Christ, we're set free from sin, but we're not yet in our homeland. So that's sometimes how Scripture, the New Testament, talks about where we're at. We're in this wilderness period, being led by God. But maybe more often is this idea of exile, this time when Israel was living in Babylon, living in a different kingdom, learning how to be faithful now, at the same time, even as that is used, it shouldn't be pushed too far because God was punishing or disciplining Israel. Our exile is not any kind of a punishment or discipline, but it is describing our, our, uh, the state we find ourselves in. We know, though, that in this letter that Paul is, not, is writing to primarily a Gentile audience, not necessarily Jews. And there are several different cues in the text that point us to that. But he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. But if we're going to talk about exile, I think we have to go back even further than Israel's exile in Babylon. This idea of exile, we have to go back to the very beginning. We have to go back to the garden to understand the scriptural idea of exile. So let me tell to you as best I can as a story. God made the earth. He is the creator of all things, and very shortly after he put all things in order, God made man. He made mankind. And then God made a garden for man, a place to live in where God and man would meet together, a place of beauty and order and delight, a place for worship. You know, and, and the garden it really is kind of pictured as an early temple. And we see this because later on, when the Jews are instructed to build a tabernacle and later the temple— there are some of the worship instruments and artifacts and design of the temple really kind of mimics the Garden of Eden. And so this was originally made to be a place of worship, where worshiping the temple later on was kind of a returning to that garden where God and man could dwell together. But eventually, the tempter came in in the form of a serpent. The man and the woman both fell into disobedience, They failed to guard the garden, to keep God's temple and themselves from pure evil. Instead of listening to God and worshiping God, they listened to the voice of the serpent. And man sinned. And God, because of that, God, who is perfect in holiness and righteousness and goodness and truth, cannot dwell in peace with them. Now, God may delay punishing sinners, but at some point, he must actually deliver it. And so humanity was ejected from the garden, never entered again. And from that garden, they entered into the wilderness. Genesis 3, 23 and 24 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the garden from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This was the first exile we see in Scripture. Exile from God's presence. Exile from the garden. And this is theologically important because it reveals something about the basic state of mankind. All people are exiles of one sort. Every son and daughter of Adam is born into exile, barred from dwelling with God. We're all exiled from the garden from which we were made for, which for which we were designed, unable to commune with God and worship with him and enter into his presence. We are all now born into the wilderness of this world. However, we do have to remind, because you know, we could easily make God the bad guy here, because he, you know, Ex- ex- exiled us from the garden but let us remember that it is us in Adam, in Eve, it is we who did evil and failed that our ejection from the garden our exile was a just result but here's where, here's where something, that's very familiar but here's where it gets really interesting there's something even more sinister that follows our fall from grace, our fall from the garden ever since we sinned something changed in us inside our hearts, our minds, our bodies, even our souls, we began to get used to life in the wilderness, life outside the garden, life apart from God. And we actually began to prefer it. Thorns and thistles aside, we saw this raw, untamed land as something we could work with, something that we could build on. Forget God's kingdom, forget God's place, We can build our own kingdoms after our own image our own designs And that is just what we did And that's where you see things like the Tower of Babel and other kingdoms as well The kingdoms of the world did just that and it is the product of generations of exiles building kingdoms to rival gods now God was not absent during all this, right? For all the world is his and everything in it, even the wilderness. And he has been directing history along his lines, raising up kingdoms at certain times and lowering them at others. But he has been preparing something all along. All along he's been, he has been making a plan and covenanting with certain people to make a way for rebels to enter back into God's kingdom back into the garden, so to speak. So at just the right time, God sent the king back into the world, into the wilderness. God sent his son, the true king, to open the doors to the kingdom and to bring exiles and sinners into it once again, where he would rescue us from the impending destruction because he promised that he would come and destroy all other kingdoms. But until that day, he would bring us back into the garden for which we were made, a place of beauty and order and delight. Now you'd have thought, right, that such, a, such an offer would be met with joy and enthusiasm, right? John 3.19 says, And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. The exiles of this world liked the kingdom of this world better. Remember, we had that something changed in us where we didn't want God's garden anymore. We didn't want his kingdom anymore. We didn't want God to be king anymore. We didn't want to enter back under God's rule. That thing that changed inside of us, which we call sin, was strong indeed. We were so enslaved by sinful desires, so married to this worldly kingdom, so confused and deceived by those serpents' lies that no part of us even wanted to enter into the kingdom, even when we saw the king in flesh and blood. We preferred exile. We would rather kill the king than submit to him, which is just what we did. Now... So we see early on that no one, it seemed like, would want to ever take up the son's offer, the king's offer, to enter back into the kingdom, to make way for the, to come back into the garden. None wanted to except those whom the father had given to the son. You see, the father had chosen before the world began, before the garden, before the fall, before the exile, before the appearance of the son. He had chosen from among the exiles of this world a people to give to His son. These are those whom God elected to bring into His kingdom. These are the ones who He would overcome their hesitancy, their stubbornness, their hardness, their blindness, their weakful, their weakness, their sinfulness, their hatefulness, not by force, but by grace. He would remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. He would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe. They would be a people for his own possession, called out of the wilderness. For them would return the yearning for the garden, the yearning for the kingdom of God. They would would return. And these people, when they heard the king's voice, when they heard the name of the son, when they heard Christ preached, something else would change in them. Something much different than the other change it was like being it 's not like the change that resulted in our being expelled from the garden it 's a new change it's like being born again, born anew, born from somewhere outside of this wilderness, and when they heard the good news of heaven's king welcoming us back into the kingdom, unlike the other exiles who didn't see who saw Jesus as a rival, not as a redeemer. These see him as a savior, and as a wonderful king, and as a friend. And these so-called elect turn and trust in the king and become the king's people once more. Now, it should not be expected, but the other exiles of this world, who do not see things the same way, do not take kindly to this. Because by submitting to the king and saying they want that, you're actually casting judgment on all these wonderful kingdoms we've made in the wilderness. And they did not respond kindly to this. So Jesus put it plainly, John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But Because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So it's actually kind of ironic. Those who belong to the kingdom of God still live in the wilderness for a time being, but we don't belong here anymore. We're exiles again but of an entirely different kind. Now we're exiles because we're citizens of heaven, destined for the world to come in all of its glory, but not there yet. And this is true of everyone who has been born from above, everyone who has been born of God, everyone who belongs to the kingdom of God, We're we're spread out all over the world. We don't gather as Israel in the Old Testament did in in one part of the world. Rather, we are dispersed all throughout the world. We speak different languages and live under different governments in different cities and towns. We don't live in our own nation. We're exiled, dispersed, and we will not truly be united as one people until we all see the king in glory and we'll be united and we go home together. That's the story. And that is, I think, what Peter has in mind when he calls us elect exiles of the dispersion. And I want you to hear something. As I said in the beginning, everyone is an exile of one sort or another. It's true of all of us. Because you are either an exile of God, where you belong to him, and this world is just a temporary place where you're living away from him, Or you're in exile from God. Where this broken world, this decaying kingdom is your home. Where the wilderness is your home. But if that's true, you're not home with God. Now I'm I'm here to say the good news, the gospel, is that the kingdom is still open. That Jesus' offer still stands. The king. Came opening it up and says, Whoever will believe, whoever will come, enter the kingdom by faith. I mentioned earlier that God elects those who will enter, and some might try to use that as a reason to distrust God or blame him for not entering the kingdom, as though this is all his fault. But that's a wilderness lie, that's a deflection. The question is will you believe? Will you believe in the Son? Will you enter the kingdom by faith? Because that is the good news. Jesus Christ died for sinners so they can be forgiven, raised to life, destined for glory, saved from condemnation, given to God to be His forever people. And if you put your trust in Christ, that is true of you. It'll be true today. It'll be true forever. If you've never done that, Call upon the king. Enter into the garden once again. Leave the wilderness of this world and enter in, by faith to the kingdom of God. And you will find Christ a wonderful savior, a generous king, and a faithful friend. And I pray that you will because it is far better to be a temporary exile of God in the wilderness of this world than to be eternally exiled from God. As in the weak and petty kingdoms that we build, we try to build our lives so that they they fit our desires, and we try to make our own decisions. We decide for ourselves how we'll live our lives and what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's good. All that's destined to fail. We weren't made for that. We were made for something better, and nothing compares to the kingdom that God is preparing for his people. Nothing else will do, and I pray that you'll enter it by faith. So our... If you are in Christ, your identity is an elect exile of the dispersion. That is who we are. And I want to take just a few moments and talk about a second portion that Peter discusses. That's our identity that he describes us as. But he also talks about what our conduct is. What what does it mean to be an exile in the world? It's more than an identity. It's an actual way of living and thinking and approaching the world. Now, this is a topic we're going to talk about a lot more in the weeks to come, so I just want to hit on a few things that Peter discusses. And so I want to turn to three things. Uh, number one would be from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So if you have your Bible, if you turn there, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light The first thing we're we're to do as exiles is to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of God In our life as sojourners, we're not to be silent we have a message. there's a reason why we 're here. We're not just trying to live under the radar and not make any noise and be silent and, and, and go away from the world, but rather, we are to, to uh, speak as loudly with our lives and our words. the message of Christ. We are emissaries in the wilderness. By our words, by our lives, we proclaim the goodness of God to urge people to leave exile from God, and to enter into his kingdom by faith. During our time of exile, guys, during, in our lives, may we be people who have Christ constantly on our lips, and God constantly in our conversations with our kids, with our spouse, as we're approaching difficulties at work and in school and in the world. You know, we're going to have a lot of opinions about politics and policies and things. I, I, I got opinions for days. I'm an opinionated person. But the things that really matter is like, man, we are the message that we have for the world is the excellencies of Christ, the glory of Christ, the gospel of Christ. Let that, that be the message of our lives in the temporary time that we're here. It's not for nothing, by the way, that we are called elect elect exiles of the dispersion. God, in his grace and in his plan, has spread us out in the world. He hasn't put us all together in one community, in one place in the world. He doesn't call Christians to live in just one country or one county. Even just in this room and those who are watching, we are spread out throughout southern York County and beyond. Think about the places where God has placed you those who live next door to you, on either side or across from you, about where you work or where you work out or where you go to school or who you sit next to at lunch. Wherever you are, God has placed you, and we are part of this dispersion that God has peppered us, I should say like salt, not like pepper, but he has placed us like salt all throughout the world so that his excellencies can be proclaimed everywhere. And so let that be part of our mindset as we're in the world. Secondly, we're called to abstain from passions of the flesh. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We're going to talk at some point about how we are in the world but not of the world. But one of the the struggles that we have is that even though we are forgiven, even though we have a new nature, we still live in the same world. We still live in the wilderness. We still live with the effects of our old nature working on us. We still have some of the same hang-ups and the same sin habits. And we still now those things that we used to think were our friends are now our enemies paul calls them the world the flesh and the devil And listen to how paul Paul puts it in the strongest possible terms These aren't minor things. He says the passions of the flesh the ways you used to live the things the world approves of those things are waging war against you So if you are doing nothing You are losing that war Paul calls us, or Peter calls us rather, to think about how we are living and to guard our hearts and to guard our minds and to make war with our sin by the grace of Christ. It's, it's, it's hard. Think, think about this. If somebody is a recovering alcoholic, right, we know that the one thing they should absolutely do is avoid going to places where there's drinking. They should not go to a bar. They should not go to places like that because it provides additional temptations, right? It makes it harder to say no when they're in a place where it's so accepted, right? You could easily get sucked back in. And maybe some of you have dealt with that or something like that. The problem is, is for recovering sinners, there's nowhere where we can go, right? We are always in a place where temptation is always around us. And we can't just retreat into, into little places and, and and not be a part of the world. And so we have to, by the grace of God, by the truth of his word, by the power of his spirit, be aware that there is a war going on against God's exiles. So we must live as kingdom people, no longer living as we used to, but living entirely different. And lastly, I do want to point out from Uh, that we are to be subject to every human institution. So read with me uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, some have done this, and you can easily see how you could get into a mind where you're like, I'm a member of the kingdom of God. Scripture says I'm a saint, okay? So uh, we're better than everybody else, so we don't have to listen to laws. You know, my only king is Jesus, so I don't have to listen to any other law. You could see how, like, mentally people could get there, unfortunately, right? And, and honestly, even the, the Jews in Jesus' era, like, there's, you know, Jesus as king, they're saying, well, hey, if you're king, do we, do we still have to pay taxes to Caesar? <laughs> right? Like, these questions were early on being asked of, of, of people who were following Jesus, right? So, but that is not the case. Jesus says that, yes, he is the king of his people, and he is the king of all creation, However, he calls us, it says, for the Lord's sake to be subject to every human institution. So we can't say, I don't need to pay taxes, I don't need to drive the speed limit, I don't need to obey the laws. Hey, this isn't my country, or I have my own king. I don't, you know, we can't do that. So the next time you get pulled over for speeding, please don't say, sorry, officer, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. You'll be put under arrest. Okay, so please don't do that. All right? All right. Or some Christians on the other end might say, hey, you know what? We belong to a better kingdom. We're going to take over this world. We're going to force institutions to be Christianized, right? We're not called to do that in this case either. It says rather we're to be subject to every human institution. Because we live under different authorities, institutions that we find ourselves under. And that includes your teacher at school. Your boss at work, your governing officials, your homeowners association, right? Now, there are times, I think, for, for righteous dissent, okay? This isn't an absolute command. There are times when Christians in good conscience cannot obey the governing authorities when they are infringing upon our ability to submit to Christ as king, our ultimate authority. But there is a general principle that applies. That so long as it is up to us, we are to live peaceable, peaceably. As much as possible during our time as exiles. Because we recognize that there is a reason why there are institutions and authorities. God is ultimately sovereign over all of it. And they are imperfect. And they won't last forever. But if there were no authorities governing, if there was no institutions, it, the world would collapse into chaos. Right? Absolute chaos. And so the reason why God is saying, these saying, hey, yeah, he even set up Babylon. Babylon even was part of God's common grace on the world, his instrument to bring some level of order in the world. Now, all of these prove themselves to be faulty and evil. And when they are evil, he punishes kingdoms and and, and, uh, states and nations. But whether you are finding yourself under the Roman emperor or the president of the United States, or the governor of Pennsylvania, or Maryland, or your boss at work, and you may like them, or you may not like them at all, the general principle that Christ calls us to live as exiles is a place of sub- submitting ourselves to these governing authorities. And, and the way Peter points out, he says, you're doing this not because necessarily those authorities are worthy, but because Christ is worthy. He says, you, you are obeying it. He says, you, you do it for the Lord's sake. And in doing so, and there, it even tells us another reason why we're doing this. He says, you're doing this because people are going to criticize Christians. They could easily say, oh, Christians, you know, you're just causing trouble. You're trying to, you know, to tear apart a society. You're trying to live completely differently. And he says, no, by doing good, we silence those who would criticize the church. Those who would, we silence those who would call us evildoers. There's a book called The City of God, um, where it's actually one of the first great political Christian works in history. Uh, St. Augustine wrote it, when uh, when the Christians were being blamed for the fall of Rome, and St. Augustine's writing, saying, no, Christians are not, not to blame, and he kind of lays out that there's really these two kingdoms or two cities, right? the city of God and the city of man or the city of this world, and these two kingdoms are living kind of side by side right now. But he says that we are to live faithfully as exiles, belonging to the kingdom of God, yet living in the kingdom of this world. And so that is how Peter describes us. He he describes us as people who are chosen and loved by God. We are living away from home temporarily as foreigners, as sojourners. And he has spread us out across this world, across this wilderness, so we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ to every part of creation. And as we explore these themes for the next few weeks, I pray that it would settle your heart. It would help you focus as you live your life and how to really interpret these changing times. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, but I want to kind of finish by reading one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is just a great summary of what God's plan is for us, a great summary of the gospel. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May we be such a people. Pray with me. Lord, God, I thank you for your great and wise and good plan. I thank you, God, that you have not left us as exiles in the world. Lord, you have made us your people god that we are not orphans we have a home we have a people we have a father lord and we have a better country a heavenly country lord would you put a yearning for our hearts a yearning to go back to that good garden that you made Lord, that we can partake of the tree of life forever and ever Lord, we look forward to the new heavens the new earth we look forward to being with you and beholding your face Lord, look forward to seeing our savior and to being united as one people across all times and places, no longer dispersed, but brought together as one. God, we yearn for that day. We long for that day. Until that day, Lord, would you help us to be faithful? Help us to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and to live upright, godly lives in this present age. We ask your blessing upon us in Christ's name.